Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Uh, in this segment of our history of Israel and the beginnings of Zionism, we're going to look at Theodor Herzl mostly, the man who was considered to be the person who came up with the idea of a Jewish state, and the man who actually created the political movement called Zionism. Herzl was actually kind of a, an ironic person to be the person to do this. He grew up uh, in Europe. He was born in 1860. Uh, he grew up without much of a Jewish education and remained very secular throughout his life. He had a Christmas tree in his home at times. Uh, he did not have his son circumcised. Uh, so he's not the kind of person that you would have thought, well, this is the guy that's going to transform the Jewish people forever. But of course, he did. And he grows up in Austria, and he also is in Hungary part-time. Uh, and he begins to hear all kinds of things no matter where he goes. And he's about as detached a Jew as there is. But when he goes to university, he joins all these intellectual clubs, and at each intellectual club, there is a kind of a debate about the Jews. The Jewish question, as he calls it, simply won't go away, and obviously the debate about the Jews is not a positive one. Uh, he reads that in the um, Hungarian parliament, there were people who were screaming, Jews, go to Palestine, which ironically, you could argue, the Hungarian anti-Semites actually gave Herzl the idea that the Jews should go to Palestine. Uh, now, of course, the Jews had thought about going to Palestine for a very long time. Right? We had prayed three times a day for God to restore us to our ancestral homeland. Uh, Jews, when they pray, always faced Jerusalem. Jews ended their Seder uh, with next year in Jerusalem. There were literally dozens, if not hundreds, of practices that Jews had continued for hundreds of years to keep the dream alive. But it had really been just a dream. It wasn't a dream that anybody who said those prayers really thought they were ever going to live to see fulfilled. Uh, and then Herzl says, why not? I mean, why can't it actually happen? If Europeans are going to scream, Jews go to Palestine, maybe that's exactly what we should do. It's ironic and sad, and we'll come back to this much later, that Amos Oz, who will become one of Israel's foremost novelists, recalled his own father telling him that when his father had been in Europe, he had seen all these signs, Jews go to Palestine. And then when he got back, when he got to Palestine, finally, there were all these signs, Jews go back to Europe. So that's part of the conundrum which Jews found themselves. They moved to Palestine because they knew that Europe didn't want them. And in moving to the Middle East, they found themselves in a region which they were not exactly welcomed. But we'll come back to that. In any event, Herzl begins to develop these ideas. And he's a Zionist long before he moves to Paris. But in Paris, he's a journalist and he covers the Dreyfus trial. The Dreyfus trial was a trial of Captain Alfred Dreyfus, who was an officer in the French army, who was accused of treason. It was very clear uh, that Dreyfus was innocent, that he had been set up, and that he was being persecuted because he was a Jew. And when Herzl saw this, something began to really burn in him in a different kind of a way. And in 1896, 
He wrote a book called The Jewish State, Der Judenstadt, in German. And here's what he says, one quick paragraph. It's a very short book, but here's one quick paragraph. We have honestly endeavored everywhere to merge ourselves into the social life of surrounding communities and to preserve the faith of our fathers. We are not permitted to do so. In vain are we loyal patriots, our loyalty in some places running to extremes. In vain do we make the same sacrifices of life and property as our fellow citizens. In vain do we strive to increase the fame of our native land and science and art or her wealth by trade and commerce. In countries where we have lived for centuries, we are still denounced as strangers. And often by those strangers who were not yet domiciled in the land where the Jews had already started suffering. No human being is wealthy or powerful enough to transplant a nation from one habitat to another. No idea alone can achieve that. And this idea of a state may have the requisite power to do so. The Jews have dreamt this kingly dream throughout all the long nights of their history. Next year in Jerusalem is our old phrase. It is now a question of showing that the dream can be converted into a living reality. He wasn't the first person to think about the Jews leaving Europe, but he was the first person to put it into a pithy book, and it was exactly at the right time because Europe is becoming so uninhabitable for the Jews in so many places. And his idea takes the world by storm. In 1896, when it appears in German, it's actually translated into seven other languages that year. And he becomes an international figure. Jews all over the world are talking about this idea. Not everybody bought it. Not everybody agreed with it. Some people were very opposed to it. But it became a sensation around the world. And somebody said to him, this is the wave you've got to ride. You're never going to get another opportunity like this. Call a conference for next year in 1897. Bring people together and let's turn the enthusiasm about your book into a political movement which is exactly what he did in the summer of 1897. 207 delegates from around the world gathered in Basel at what would ultimately become called the First Zionist Congress. And somebody who was there described these 207 people in the hall. They were wearing tuxedos and the ladies were wearing fancy gowns. And the person who was there said, everybody sat breathless as if in the presence of a miracle. And in truth, was it not a miracle that we beheld? And then wild applause broke out. For 15 minutes, the delegates clapped and shouted and waved their handkerchief. Now, where did that enthusiasm come from? Why were they so excited? And as I said, it was because the idea wasn't new. For Jews back then, religious or secular, it didn't matter. They knew that this idea of going back to their homeland was one of the central ideas and dreams of Judaism. So it didn't matter if they lived in South America or in Europe or in North America, or in the Middle East, or in the Levant, which is the northern, the northern part of Africa, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and so on and so forth. Jews all over the world understood that Herzl was simply translating this ancient idea into a new modern political ideology. If Jews grow up today in the 21st century and don't understand how deeply rooted that dream was in Jewish life, then again, Zionism makes much less, much less sense. But if you understood how deep was that dream and how powerful was that yearning, then of course Zionism and Herzl's dream begins to make a lot of sense. Now Herzl begins to work very actively beginning in 1897 to move his project forward. He goes to all kinds of government officials and all kinds of Jewish philanthropists. A ton have been written about this and we don't have time to go into it. But the next major event that I want to mention is 1903. So we're kind of fast forwarding six years. Herzl is by this point sick. 
He is not old at all. He's 43 years old, but he knows that he has heart trouble and he is working himself literally to death. And there is in the city of Kishinev in Russia, a pogrom, which is government-sponsored violence, happens in 1903. Now, there have been pogroms all across Eastern Europe for many, many decades, and a lot of them actually had been a lot worse than the Kishinev pogrom. But the Kishinev pogrom somehow did something to the Jewish people that no other pogrom had. Partly it's because photography had already been invented. Partly it's because the telegraph had been invented and the New York Times actually covered it the next day. Partly it's because a poet named Chaim Nachman Bialik went to Kishinev and wrote one of Judaism's most powerful poems ever based on what he saw. So Kishinev takes the Jewish world by fire for an elaborate array of reasons. But among them, this was the 21st, this is the 20th century. This was not supposed to happen. The 20th century was supposed to be the century of modernity, of rationality, of science. If this had happened in the 1800s, okay, but now we're in the 1900s. This is still going to happen again. One of the historians who's written about the Kishinev pogrom writes this about what people who were there described. Just to give you a sense of the wanton hatred of the Jew, how hatred of the Jew was simply a sport at this point in Europe. A boy's tongue was cut out while the two-year-old was still alive. Mayor Weissman, blinded in one eye from youth, begged for his life with, the author of, with an offer of 60 rubles. And taking the money, the leader of the crowd destroyed his small grocery store and then gouged out Weissman's other eye, saying, you will never again look upon a Christian child. Nails were driven through heads. Bodies were hacked in half. Bellies were split open and filled with feathers. Women and girls were raped, and some women alive had their breasts cut off. I mean, we are talking about horrors that were simply unimaginable in the 20th century. And Herzl begins to get desperate. He feels that there's not enough time to let history take its course, and he begins to agitate all over Europe and other places as well to try to get some support for this idea of a place where the Jews could build their own homeland. And right around that time, Joseph Chamberlain, who was the British colonial secretary, has an idea. And he says to Herzl and others, we have this spot It's in what's today called Kenya, but it was called then the Ugandan Protectorate. So it becomes known as the Uganda Plan. We have this idea, we have this relatively open space in the Kenyan Protectorate. How about we give it to you? Now, there's going to be all kinds of conditions and we're going to have the right to take it back and so on and so forth. But if everything works out, you can have it. How about that? And Herzl raises this idea. He actually thinks it's a pretty good idea. The Middle East is very complicated. The Ottomans control Palestine and they're in no mood to see the Jews move there. But the British seem to be willing to give the Jews a spot in Africa. And he suggests it at the 6th Zionist Congress in August 1903. There is a huge and painful debate the Congress almost splits in two. Uh, and before the Congress can gather again uh, for the Seventh Zionist Congress, Herzl is actually going to die of a heart attack. And he will die actually knowing in a certain way that he'd given birth to a movement, but also fearing that he himself had destroyed the movement. And he will be with one of the many, many Zionist leaders and thinkers who will actually die because he literally worked himself to death. Uh, the next Zionist Congress will begin with a eulogy to Herzl and um, will then move on with the Uganda plan completely rejected. And the question, of course, is why was the Uganda plan such a bad idea as far as so many of these 
delegates at the Zionist Congress were concerned. Why was it so unthinkable? I mean, what's better about Palestine than Kenya? But Herzl, because he was really not raised inside the depths of the Jewish community, didn't fully understand was that Zionism was never really only about a safe place. It wasn't only about a place without anti-Semitism. It wasn't only about a place without the pressure to assimilate. It wasn't only about a refuge. Zionism at the end of the day was about going home. Zionism was about going back to the place where the stories in the Bible had unfolded, where King Saul had ruled, where King David had ruled, where King Solomon had ruled, the place to which Moses had led the Jewish people. At the end of the biblical book of Lamentations, a very brief book of five chapters that describes the destruction of the first temple, one of the very last verses says this, Hashivenu Hashem elecha v'nashuva chadesh yamenu kikedem. Take us back to you, O Lord, and let us come back. Renew our days as of old. That's what Zionism really was all about. It was about going home. It was about renewing our days as of old. Herzl tragically dies in 1904 and will not live to see that plan come to be. He lived long enough to know that the Uganda plan was never going to happen. He lived long enough to see the beginnings of Zionism. He unfortunately didn't live to see the fruition of his dream, which is going to happen only a few days later, a few decades later, and which we're going to talk about a couple of segments from now. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.